Why did three separate stories of dark money contributions make the list of top 25 most censored stories of 2022? What is the true shadow story hiding behind the misleading Western press narratives about the war in Ukraine? Are China, Russia, and BRICS countries representing an authoritarian threat to the Western democratic rules of order system or a liberation of the Middle East, Africa, and developing nations throughout the world? Was the rollback of COVID restrictions and the discrediting of lockdowns and vaccines largely a response to many citizens' loss of confidence in the CDC? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we spend the show talking about the major events of the past year getting little or no attention in the mainstream media. In our first half hour, we hear from Andy Lee Roth of Project Censored about the top stories missed by the press in the United States and the annual yearbook published for 2023. In our second half hour, we hear from three past guests, Radhika Desai, Matthew Errett, and Rax Blumenthal about the top major stories in their view that got little or no coverage by the major media. On this week's program, from free press to billionaire press, we're viewing the top censored stories of 2022. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 6th, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'd like to acknowledge the show is produced on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The historical persecution of the people whose land was stolen and whose rights were taken should not be the basis for privilege, and we are striving to correct the injustices against those people through reparations in the present. We start our program, though, with... News Notes, a summary of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Preoccupied, mesmerized ministers attend back-to-back confabs where EU whips lurk furtively, and Euros outnumber Anglos 5 to 1. Anglosphere and EU agree to sacrifice their coal and oil industries. EU sacrifices nothing whilst boosting climate-friendly exports and reducing fuel imports. Anglosphere surrenders its competitive advantage whilst backflopping into the Great Depression. Sounds melodramatically awful, but EU sharps hold a boss hand. A four-prime minister, President High, climateer flush. That comes from the article, The EU Anglosphere Climate War, by William Walter K. posted January 4th. 
75 years. That's how long Pfizer and the FDA tried to hide the Pfizer documents from public view, long after just about everyone affected is dead. It wasn't until renowned attorney Aaron Siri led a FOIA case against the FDA that a federal judge ordered the documents to be released in 108 days, the same amount of time it took the FDA to approve the COVID-19 injections. Within the Pfizer documents is document 5.3.6, post-marketing experience, a cumulative analysis of adverse event reports occurring in the 90 days after the public rollout of the COVID-19 mRNA injection. And within that report, 275 people suffered a stroke suspected to be attributed to the vaccine between days 1 to 41. 50% of these occurred within the first 48 hours after injection. That comes from the article, Criminal Malfeasance. Pfizer knew 275 people suffered serious strokes in the first 90 days after vaccine rollout. Posted January 4th, originally published on Daily Clout. Why bugs? As is obvious to many of us, this elite fascination with making people eat bugs is not about nutrition or saving the planet or any other positive purpose. Rather, it seems most to be about the demonstration of power and control. Food production and consumption is fundamental to life, and the history of humanity is in large measure the history of securing and producing food. Regional cuisines reflect the adaptations people have made to convert the local materials into consumable foodstuffs. That comes from the article, Let Them Eat Bugs, by David Robb, posted January 4th, originally published on Canada Free Press. The stock market crash initiated on February 20th, referred to as the 2020 coronavirus crash, February 20th to April 7th, 2020, was categorized as, quote, the fastest fall in global stock markets in financial history and the most devastating crash since the Wall Street crash of 1929, unquote. The alleged cause of the financial crash was the virus, according to prominent analysts, namely the massive spread of the epidemic outside China. But that was an outright lie, refuted by official WHO data. Media disinformation played a key role in spearheading the fear campaign. That comes from the article, WHO Fraud. There never was a pandemic. February 20th, 2020, Dr. Tedros announced an, quote, expanding worldwide epidemic, unquote. By Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, posted January 4th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Back for our annual review of the most censored stories of the year, we are joined once again by Andy Lee Roth. 
Andy V. Roth is the Associate Director of Project Censored and Coordinator of the Project Campus Affiliates Program. Roth also serves on the board of the Media Freedom Foundation. Welcome to the Global Research News uh, Hour, Andy. It's, uh, it's great to have you on again. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to join you on Global Research uh, uh, Radio once more. Yeah. Now, before we talk about some of our your pick for most censored stories of 2022, how would you, in a nutshell, describe the uh, theme or tone of censored 2023 in terms of what made this a unique or pivotal year? Well, our, our, our subtitle that Mickey Huff, the project's director, and I highlight in the introduction to this year's volume is uh, the book, of course, is State of the Free Press 2023. And we have all kinds of positive things to say about developments in terms of independent journalism and high quality investigative reporting from outside the kind of corporate sphere. Um, date of the free struck through and replaced by billionaire press. Um, uh, you know, right now, obviously, widespread attention being paid to Elon Musk and what Elon Musk is doing to and with Twitter. Um, and he is just one of uh, a number of the, in effect, billionaire uh, elites who uh, Mickey Huff and I call out in the introduction to this year's yearbook um, for uh, how their interests in uh, controlling uh, uh, various press outlets don't necessarily in any way serve the public interest. And Musk is uh, certainly drawing attention in that regard now, but there are a host of other figures too long for us to even run through in the scope of this interview of, of basically today's Gilded Age billionaire elites who are also very much interested in and invested in uh, controlling media platforms of one kind or another. It's not just Musk and Twitter. Mm, yes, I mean, there's NewsGuard and, and other things uh, that's uh, sort of, you know, confined the uh, the reach of, of news and, and really intensified the need to, you know, break out into independent journalism. But let's look at these uh, top stories now. Um, I know that, for one thing, the role of dark money really pops out. I don't remember any stories in the past using the term. Uh, you had three stories this time. Dark money interference in the U.S. politics undermines democracy. New laws preventing dark money disclosures uh, sweep the nation. And dark money fuels transphobic opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment and Equality Act. So I, I guess I'll, I'll let you define the term for us and, and guide us through why the story of dark money is so crucial this year. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Um, we had a little bit of an internal debate about whether we ought to devote three separate stories on our top 25 list to dark money. And ultimately, uh, the project's esteemed judges and um, the faculty contributing uh, research to this year's volume agreed each of these was important enough to stand on its own. Um, so dark money uh, refers to financial contributions that purposely hide the donors' names and identities from the public view, from public scrutiny. Um, and the result of that is that dark money um, deeply influences political decisions in favor of those donors' interests and agendas, um, and often in ways that are not only invisible to uh, the, the more general public, but also at odds with what are arguably the public's uh, 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 common interests. 
Um, so it really, what we're really talking about here are, are uh, fully counter-democratic forces um, that go uh, above and beyond what we've known in the past is kind of the power of big money to sway elections or to influence politicians. Uh, much of, of kind of traditional financial influences has been publicly known. Um, one of, so one of this trio of stories that we have um, is about how states across the United States are now passing laws based on model legislation from ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, to make it even harder for people like investigative reporters and public interest research groups to expose dark money contributions to elections, uh, political campaigns, um, Supreme Court nomination processes, and so um, reporting by David Moore and Donald Shaw from Sludge, um, as well as an important report by Alice McFadden from Open Secrets, document how uh, model legislation uh, based on this ALEC, uh, this ALEC uh, generated template has, uh, at the time that the censored yearbook went to press, um, there were, I believe, something like 17 states that either had passed or uh, had proposed or pending uh, uh, legislation based on Alec's model. So Oklahoma, Arizona, Mississippi, Utah, across the country, um, we're seeing a wave of legislation aimed at making it even harder for, uh, for uh, people to know uh, what kind of dark money uh, contributions are influencing the political process. And why this matters, um, ultimately dark money, I think, undermines the public's trust in government in general, because there's a sense of, well, everything's bought and sold, only we don't really know how much and where and when and how, because it's done uh, through dark money uh, 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 contributions. And also uh, not just uh, under corrosive of trust in government, but also a corrosive of trust in uh, electoral processes, because a lot of the a lot of the dark money donations that have been exposed are specifically targeted at um, uh, swaying elections. Yeah, so it seems like you know the more concentration of power there is, like media or yeah, corporate and media consolidation, uh, uh, then you have all these other elements coming in and including the dark money and, and making uh, you know consumption of independent news uh, even more uh, demanding and difficult, as you say. Um, I. Uh, I want to look at uh, Julian Assange because, uh, I mean, if listeners know anything about Assange, they should know the, the, the story on its own uh, of a modern day Daniel Ellsberg is, is severely underreported. But also not well known is that the CIA has plotted to kidnap or kill him. Give us the source and, 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 and the background of this story. Yeah, thank you, Michael. This is such an important story. And this is one of those ones that when we began to research it, we were shocked. How could how could CIA discussions of kidnapping or killing Julian Assange um, not, not have merited uh, uh, news coverage in the establishment press in the United States or for that matter around the world? Um, but indeed, it's uh, as are all the stories on this year's top 25 list, they make it onto the list uh, on the basis not only of their importance, but also on the lack of adequate coverage on the story from corporate news outlets. 
So this is a story uh, that was broken by Yahoo News, a team of reporters led by Michael Isakoff. They interviewed 30 former U.S. officials um, about uh, the CIA's plans uh, uh, for Assange under the direction of uh, Mike Pompeo, who was then the director of the CIA. This is back in 2017. Um, and eight of those uh, high-ranking U.S. officials, former U.S. officials, discussed with the Yahoo News team that broke this story plans to either abduct Assange or uh, three of them described the de de development of plans to, to assassinate him. These plans were fairly detailed. They involved uh, soliciting the cooperation of the UK government, the possibilities of um, uh, 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 you know, gunfights in London streets, uh, and so forth and so on. They were, as one former official told Yahoo News, uh, these discussions took place at, quote, the highest levels of the Trump administration. Um, at least one senior official noted that there were discussions about whether killing Assange was not just possible, but legal. Now, when this report came out, there were plenty of flacks who came back and said, oh, Isakoff and his team had uh, had shabby sources. Uh, this wasn't a legitimate news story. Some people went so far as to say Yahoo News. I mean, is that even a serious organization? Um but all that is exactly the kind of flack that Herman and Chomsky's propaganda model would predict for uh, the kind of story uh, that this is. Um, and uh, when we looked, I mentioned corporate news coverage. Uh, we found little to no establishment news coverage of this story in the United States. Uh, the one passing reference to it that we found was an October 2021 New York Times article that only made uh, reference to the CIA's plotting uh, as part of an argument made by uh, Assange's lawyers to oppose his extradition to the US. So it was just kind of, oh, that was something his lawyers said to try to keep him from being brought here on Espionage Act charges. Um, the story did receive a bit more coverage in the UK, including reports in the Daily Mail, The Guardian, and The, and the Independent. But if you were a, a, you know, a member of the U.S. following primarily U.S. news sources and corporate ones at that, you would know little to nothing about this. And that, of course, Mike, Michael, is, I think, part and parcel with uh, basically how uh, the corporate media have, have used and abused Julian Assange uh, from the get-go, right? They've been happy to win awards for uh, reporting stories based on materials that WikiLeaks has made public, uh, but it's a shoot the messenger dynamic when it comes to Julian Assange himself. Um, yeah. I'd add quickly here for people who are interested, uh, one of the best reporters on this topic consistently has been Kevin Gastola at Shadowproof and Project Censored's printing, uh, uh, publishing imprint, the Censored Press, will be bringing out a book by Kevin Gastola about Assange and WikiLeaks uh, early in 2023, uh, the title of Kevin's book is Guilty of Journalism, and it's one to look forward to. Um, Kevin has a lot to say about how the U.S. media have failed to adequately cover what's at stake in this case. And it's really nothing less, uh, although Assange is himself not necessarily a journalist or a whistleblower, the charges against him as a publisher will have a chilling effect on all kinds of journalism, not just in the U.S. and around the world. Um, so Kevin Gastola's Guilty of Journalism is a book to look out for as we head into 2023. 
Yeah, um, I know that a, a lot of the stories uh, on your uh, list are, you know, there's are climate change related as, as an ongoing menace and, and stuff, stuff that we're not being told. Uh, and you have a few stories there. I, I noticed one particular that's interesting. Smart ocean technology endangers whales and intensifies climate change. I've heard of smart cities involving new technologies, 5G and so forth, but, but not smart oceans. I mean, guide us through what this smart oceans uh, story is all about and, 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 and about their, their understated harmful elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Michael. This is a this is a kind of, I think a kind of classic project censored, uh, important but underreported news story, uh, reported by uh, Kohan Pike Mander, published by BuzzFlash via the Independent Media Institute's Local Peace Economy Project. So, for folks who don't already know about the Independent Media Institute, it's a great resource, giving a wider. Creating a wider audience for all kinds of important independent investigative news reporting. Um, there is, uh, uh, many of us have heard, as you suggest, of the Internet of Things. Uh, there's a developing Internet of Underwater Things that uh, involves new uh, technologies and infrastructures in the ocean, combining um, kind of joint interests of military and uh, corporate industrial efforts. These, as Con Pike Mander reports, will have lethal consequences for whales. Um, much of this kind of new technology is driven by sonar, uh, which historically has been primarily used uh, for military purposes. But developing data networks, oceanic data networks, will use sonar and other forms of transmitters to basically saturate our oceans with sonar waves. Now, these waves uh, are, are, can be lethal for whales. This is a multi-part story, so bear with me here. The developing technologies use sonar. Sonar is hazardous to whales. Um, it triggers in many species of whales the same fear response that they have when they hear killer whales, their most terrifying predators uh, coming after them. Mm -hmm. And we know from uh, extensive reporting, including a March 2022 report in Science Magazine, that uh, whales, uh, when encountering these sonar waves that trigger these uh, predator-prey responses in them, often will stop feeding, they will flee in mass numbers and often end up stranding themselves in groups on beaches. Okay, that's the second part of the story. So new technology affects whales. Third part of the story, whales actually play an indispensable role in countering climate change. They move massive amounts of phytoplankton from deep seas to the surface. And the movement of phytoplankton is crucial in sequestering carbon. This is, uh, it's not often that Project Censored cites the uh, International Monetary Fund, the IMF, as one of our authoritative and important sources, but I'll do this now. Um, a 2019 IMF report noted that um, an increase in 1% phyto phytoplankton productivity due to whale activity in our oceans can capture as much as 100 hundreds of millions of tons of carbon dioxide every year, the equivalent of some 2 billion mature trees. So let's work this backwards now. Um, whales are crucial to um, uh, countering um, the climate crisis by sequestering carbons. 
We're developing new technologies for corporate and military purposes in the oceans that are harmful to whales. The indirect upshot of all this is that uh, this kind of developing internet of underwater things, the so-called smart oceans, as engineers and advocates like to term it, uh, will be catastrophic not only for whales, but also be one more kind of brick in the wall uh, in the in the climate crisis, which is existential uh, in its scope. Okay, I, I guess we're, we've got a couple of minutes left, and uh, I, I'd like to talk about, uh, I guess, Sensor 2023. Uh, um, I know maybe you could, uh, I mean, I know there's uh, some interesting stuff. There's uh, uh, Heidi Bogosian at the, at the beginning talking about their actual physical uh, attacks on journalism. So is this like even upping the ante? Um, you've got the... Uh, the, the junk food news coming up, uh, and of course your uh, excellent introduction. Uh, maybe I'll let you take us through the, the rest of the, I mean, we, I guess I say we only have a couple of minutes left to just, you just briefly describe some of the high points of Sensor 2023 this, this year. Yeah, so some of the other chapters very quickly, this is a galloping overview, um, and I'd encourage people to check out the book. Um, we've packed it every year full of the best information that we can. Um, one of the highlights in the Deja Vu news chapter this year, which goes back and looks at what happened to previous year's top 25 stories, is a, is a disconcerting story about um, last year we reported on plastics in the ocean and the, the discovery that plastics were um, increasingly being found in the most remote parts of the world's oceans. Our update on that story this year by Steve Masick and his team of researchers is that plastics are now being found in human blood. Um, the health effects of ending, but it can't be good for uh, our collective health, um, that that's so. Um, you mentioned the junk food news chapter. Uh, we have stories about the billionaire space race, space tourism, um, uh, uh, and a variety of other stories. Uh, as always, junk food news juxtaposes these kind of uh, frivolous or tr trivial stories with important stories that happened at the same time that were buried by the corporate media as they pursued sensational news in the place of substantive reporting. Um, and we have Robin Anderson uh, in the news abuse story uh, chapter. Uh, news abuse refers to stories that are of significant importance but get so spun by the corporate press that the importance is masked or hidden. Um, Robin this year is writing about uh, criminal justice or injustice, depending on your perspective, mass shootings and war, looking at parallels in how corporate news media have covered domestic uh, violence, um, uh, in particular mass shootings here in the US compared with uh, war overseas. And that, all that may be kind of a downer. The final chapter is Media Democracy in Action, where we highlight um, independent people and organizations that are doing fantastic work, um, uh, exemplary work in the literal sense of that term, work that can serve as inspiring examples for all of us. And here I would give a, a shout out to one of this year's contributors of Sonarigo of Article 19, the international organization that champions free expression. Uh, she has a, a very interesting and to me inspiring contribution about design from the margins how the apps and other platforms that we use on a daily basis can be designed to protect the most marginal uh, in any given society and that there are benefits for all from designing that way. And I've been thinking a lot about Afsana's argument um, as it pertains to news. What if we had a design 
from the margins perspective for news and journalism. She has a number of guidelines that are important for any kind of uh, for any for tech for people who are developing apps and other forms of tech. Um, but that I think there is, I think she's onto something far more profound or for not, not more profound, that's important in its own right, but that also has a much wider scope for applicability. Okay. So we try to end the, end the book every year on a positive note with things that will inspire us and send us into the new year with um, not only a kind of critical awareness of what's wrong with the free press right now, but also um, some hope for uh, what we might do to, to make next year uh, a year of more robust um, press and more vibrant, inclusive democracy. Okay, Andy, we Groth, we got to go, but thank you for that look and uh, be sure to uh, check it out at uh, projectcensor.org. Thank you very much uh, for this, um, Andy, and uh, we'll see you again next year. <laughs> Sounds great, Michael. Thank you. I've been speaking with Andy Lee Roth, Associate Director of Project Censor. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The Global Research News Hour invited three individuals in independent news to comment on what their takes were on the major stories in the world that were not given significant attention in the mainstream Western press. My first guest is Radhika Desai. She is professor in the Department of Political Studies, a convener of the International Manifesto Group, and director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group at the University of Manitoba in Canada. Well, let me just say that, you know, the Western mainstream media has, over the last two or three years, over the pandemic and over the war over Ukraine, has scaled new heights of uh, what can we say, prostitution as it's called, like it's basically uh, parroting the narrative of the West. And the narrative of the West is so far away from reality that practically every major story which appears in the Western press has a hidden or shadow real story which we need to bring out. So in that sense, so, so, so having said that, for example, so what's the biggest picture? The biggest picture I see in the New York, sorry, in the Financial Times or the Guardian or many other very established news presses, we are being told that President Biden has ended the year very well. He has managed to unite the West as never before, uh, is, uh, you know, keeping down the Rus Russia's brutal war on Ukraine, etc., etc., um, and, you know, somehow has managed the economy better than expected, etc. So in practically every which way you look at it, these narratives are wrong. And the important thing for us to see is what is the real story. Now, there are so many things we can talk about in terms of the very fast moving events that are reshaping the world order at a very rapid pace. My joke in 2020 used to be that this is the year of reading newspapers because so much was changing every day that just reading the news became a full-time occupation. And also, of course, so much was, you know, being uh, uh, falsely portrayed in the Western media that you had to hunt down every reliable alternative web source in order to find out what was really going on. So it, as I say, became a full-time occupation. Now, among in the context of these fast-moving events, we can talk about a, a lot of different things. We can talk about, obviously, 
the state of the U.S. economy, the war over Ukraine, the pandemic situation, the fast-changing international relations in practically every region of the world, in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, everywhere you see China's influence prevailing, that of the United States and the West declining. Um, if you look at the map of the world, you know, unlike contrary to what the American and uh, other Western press agencies say, you know, that somehow the, the Biden has united the world and certainly united Europe, etc. What you see is actually the imperialist world shrunk more or less to its boundaries of 1914. Not a single major addition has been made to it. So. Anyway, this is the reality. So in rather than talk about all the different things, you know, whether it's the visit of uh, 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 Marcos to China or uh, 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 the new equation between Russia and OPEC plus and uh, the better relations that the Saudi Arabians are today enjoying with China, uh, whether we talk want to talk about um, oh so many other different things the, the the new equation with the war in Syria etc I think it might be best to just focus on a couple of different things so I would say number one I'd like to talk a little bit about the real story the the story that people are not talking about uh, relating to the war over Ukraine so and then the second thing I'd like to talk about is the real story of the U.S. economy so let's take them one by one. Um, and, you know, uh, and feel free to interrupt me with any questions if you think I'm missing something. But essentially, what's being portrayed as a major victory on the part of the United States and Ukraine over Russia, it's the reality is the complete opposite. What we have been seeing over the last 10 months and more is Russia in making very slow but sure advances to the extent that it not only has kept Crimea secure and not only has fought for and defended the Donbass republics, the two Donbass people's republics, but also uh, uh, committed itself to defending and incorporating within Russia two further provinces of uh, Ukraine. So, and, and that process is going forward. The reason why Russia does not proceed in some kind of a blitzkrieg type situation is that in all instances, it is determined to minimize the loss of life. By contrast, the Ukrainian armed forces, which include, as you well understand, a number of units that are essentially neo-fascist units. These people do seem not to care about the loss of life and are incurring losses that are about, according to certain estimates, about 10 times the, the, the losses that have been incurred by Russia. So basically, the Russians the, the Russians are produced, proceeding methodically and slowly, and it seems to me that, that that looking forward in 2023, I think that we will be seeing the successful conclusion of Russian operations in Ukraine, having achieved what they wanted to achieve, which was the protection of the eastern provinces, uh, if possible, the denazification de of Ukraine, which may happen simply by reducing Ukraine to a rump of its former self, which is which is very much on the cards. And so in this sense, I think that the that the Russian so and 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 while of course the Russian economy has faced a setback, it has uh, uh, recorded a, 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 a GDP reduction of some three or four percent. The fact of the matter is this damage is a fraction of what the US economy was uh, uh, was going to see. Uh, what was it was the US government was expecting to see. 
So that's the situation with the war. The, so the hidden story is actually not so much one of Ukrainian, you know, uh, 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 resilience and Ukrainian heroism against the big Goliath of Russia. It's actually that Russia is is proceeding in a much more sensible way, as any responsible uh, military strategist would. And that's what we are looking at there. Uh, and the by the way, so, the, uh, the U.S. economy was the, the, the next part. Yeah, so I, I just want to say one more thing about uh, the war in Ukraine before moving to the U.S. economy, and that's uh, actually two more things very quickly. Number one, the idea that the U.S. has uh, united the West uh, uh, and you, you and particularly Europe with itself is very questionable. If you just look at the uh, transcript of the or look at the video of the uh, press conference that uh, Biden recently gave with Zelensky when Zelensky visited the United States. Towards the end of the press conference, Biden was forced to admit that U.S. support for Ukraine had to be limited because Western Europe would not accept any greater level of support. And this clearly shows that there are still big tensions between the Western Europeans and the Americans. And as the cost to Western Europe mounts, we can expect this alliance to break. That's the first thing I wanted to say. The second thing I want to say is that Indeed, it seems to me for all the stories that the U.S. administration puts out in the in the uh, media, it seems to me that the U.S. administration, uh, you know, is is actually sort of uh, 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 positioning itself to to withdraw as much as possible from the Ukrainian situation and possibly refocus on China in the coming year. And that's another thing we have to look out for, which is that. Uh, relations of the Biden administration with China are deteriorating rapidly. And here also, you will see a big rift between Europe and, and the United States, because the Europeans, as you see from recent visits by Olaf Scholz and so on, the Europeans want to maintain good relations with China. The Europe, for the Europeans, China is economically very important. Um, and so I think we will be seeing further rifts. So um, We're so, just running so, short those, on time, so maybe if you could next get yeah. to the next uh, part of your uh, right. so story. Let me, let me say about the U.S. economy. So basically, to me, the big story of the U.S. economy has been obviously the rise in inflation. But the mainstream press has been talking about the rise in inflation as being really a matter of Federal Reserve competence. That is the Federal Reserve able to contain inflation? And the narrative is spun out of the narrative of the last several decades, which have portrayed the Federal Reserve as being completely in command of the situation and able to run the economy simply by little shifts in monetary policy here and there. What we are in reality, of course, all that deft economic management was all about creating and sustaining the structures of financialization. The Federal Reserve has simply no purchase on the American economy. So as the Federal Reserve has increased financialization, what we have witnessed, in fact, is a is a is a is an incredible decline in the real productive structures of the American economy. And the reason why you have seen the rise of inflation is precisely due to this productive weakness. So while the mainstream press keeps talking about, you know, whether the Federal Reserve has the nerve to quell inflation, and of course, and, and progressives say, of course, the Federal Reserve should not tighten the monetary policy, etc., because it will cause a recession. And indeed, beyond the point, it will cause a recession. 
the reality is much different. Number one, the Federal Reserve dare not increase interest rates beyond a certain point. If it does, it will essentially collapse the financial house of cards it has erected itself over the last several decades. And secondly, that what's really needed to revive the American economy is a radical government intervention, not Federal Reserve intervention, government intervention in order to restore the productive strength of the economy. This will require industrial policy on a scale not witnessed since the Second World War, when the American government practically ran the American economy. Mm-hmm. And so that is the real untold, another real untold story. That was Radhika Desai, professor of political studies at the University of Manitoba and convener of the International Manifesto Group. She also recently authored a book, Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War, A Geopolitical Economy. You can get the free download at the site taylorfrancis.com. My next guest is Matthew Errett. He is a journalist, lecturer, and founder of the Canadian Patriot Review. He is based in Montreal. Well, I think the importance of the vast strategic shift that has happened largely in the Middle East and Africa, led by China and Russia and the entire growing BRICS plus Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which has created a real new viable alternative, both financial as well as security architecture, uh, peaking as it did uh, after Xi Jinping's recent visit to the Gulf states, to Saudi Arabia, Um, I think that this has not been covered properly by the West at all, um, for obvious reasons. There is a major effort to try to project the idea that there is only one game in town, which is the rules-based international order, which for most of the world's population who have increasingly joined up with the Belt and Road Initiative, the new architecture being set up um, in Eurasia, but not just isolated there, it obviously spreads to Latin America, the Caribbean, CELAC nations, as well as Africa, there is a indeed another much more viable game in town. And again, those those incredible uh, new institutions that have really taken on new life um, in terms of the alternative um, mechanisms to SWIFT that have allowed nations to break free of the Western-dominated uh, payment systems, as well as Visa. I mean, there's now a variety of alternative approaches or, or ways to get out of the visa Western credit controlled system using mere cards, other forms of um, payments and, and, and debit system or not debit uh, visa alternative systems of a of China, uh, new BRICS banks, Asian international development banks, I think are increasingly taking on new life. So these are all very, very powerful things. And the importance of paying and settling uh, payments in, Yuan and Renminbi when dealing with oil transactions for the Gulf states and beyond is also very important and is undermining the monopoly power of the US dollar, which uh, has to happen if nations are going to survive the coming storm. So I think, again, this is really, really the most important outcome of 2022, and it's going to continue to shape the fight as we go into 2023. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of the things like the uh, the Saudi Arabians finally pricing their uh, current uh, pricing their oil in uh, one. That's part of this whole shift to the uh, mm-hmm. this uh, new uh, transition. Um, so, I mean, do you see a, a different uh, you know any parallel operations happening in that? Uh, in that capacity? Yeah. 
Oh, I mean, yeah, most certainly. I, I, I think you have, it's not just Saudi Arabia, it's all of the Gulf uh, Cooperation Council uh, states, which have incre- agreed to increasingly transition to um, settling their payments in yuan, um, like all of their oil sales. And also, I mean, you have India has made leaps in terms of of dealing with their trade with Russia in rubles and rupees um, and local currencies. You also have a variety of of African nations who have increasingly. I mean, they're preparing right now for the upcoming Russia Africa summit, which is going to happen very shortly, and a new China Africa summit, which is also going to come on the heels of that. Um, there's there's a whole variety of things that I mean are touching on. Uh, giving nations the ability to use their sovereign powers of national banking, national currency creation um, as part of a broader new way of thinking about value, which is not something tied towards debt creation without producing real wealth, as it has become too much the norm in the Western world for the past decades, leading to the current transformation of our once viable industrial economy that we once had into a giant speculative bubble that is now collapsing. It's, It's exploding. Their view is we need infrastructure, we need to pull people out of poverty, create educational institutions, trade schools that put pe- give people real value. Very different from the Davos mode of thinking that just see you know sees the governing uh, challenge as how do you manage useless eaters with drugs and video games while exploiting the poor of the world for their child labor in Africa, you know Congo in in Congo uh, cobalt mines. So it's a very different philosophy. Um, and uh, no, there, there's a whole variety of ways that this is manifesting itself with new free trade corridors, um, touching on the Belt and Road Initiative, the Eurasian Economic Union, and also many of the healing which is occurring by the building of of diplomatic bridges amongst rival nations in Southwest Asia. Um, Iran is seeing, seeing a healing of its diplomatic bridges, which have been consciously destroyed over decades of Anglo-American geopolitics with Saudi Arabia, with other Gulf states, with Turkey. Turkey and Syria are finally seeing a healing as well, since uh, largely brokered by by the Russians. Um, so there's a lot of this this peacemaking going on right now to create stability and uh, and an environment whereby long term growth and development can actually begin to occur. And this also includes Africa too, which I've written about, but we don't. I don't think I have time to go into details here. Okay. So looking forward, what sort of stories are you watching out for? in 2023. Well, I'm really paying attention to the uh, the development, the use of Japan right now as a bit of a, a loose cannon um, as part of the uh, a branch of the US military industrial complex. Obviously, the the, the pacifist constitution of Japan has been retooled uh, completely. They're going through historic record breaking purchases of US US made um, weapons, long range missiles and other things that are part of a very provocative set of maneuvers around the, the construction of an attempted NATO of the Pacific around the quad. So that's something which is concerning me uh, quite a bit. Obviously, the manipulation of the military industrial complex in Taiwan is another point of concern. But um, I think the, I mean, I, obviously, I, I'm sure other people will be speaking about Ukraine and the development of other fire starting uh, arsonist arson operations around Russia's southern uh, perimeter. So I won't really go into that here, but all that goes without saying that these are different sides of the same operation. So I think that's going to be shaping things quite a bit. And again, the role of Sergei Glaziev and Glaziev's important strategic thinking about a new financial architecture with his colleagues 
in China is really, really important and something that I think a lot of people undervalue, which is going to continue to shape 2023 in a very, very serious way. That was Montreal-based journalist, lecturer, and publisher Matthew Errett. Finally, we got hold of Max Blumenthal. He's founder and editor of The Gray Zone for his take on the major news event of 2022. There are two themes within one of the stories that is has gotten some of the most attention from mainstream media, which is the Ukraine proxy war. Of course, because the Ukraine proxy war is covered by the mainstream and corporate press as an unprovoked invasion by Vladimir Putin, these other themes, which I think are shaping the history of the 21st century going forward, are being largely ignored, obfuscated, or distorted. The first theme is the reorientation and de-dollarization of the world economy as the world moves slowly, grindingly, and painfully towards a multipolar world order. And that was accelerated by the economic firewall that the West has built around, attempted to build around Russia as punishment for its invasion of Ukraine, which took place in February of this year. And that is backfired in many ways. The sanctions that have been placed on Russia have boomeranged, and we now see an energy crisis looming on the horizon for Europe, the EU plunging to its lowest point, the ruble strengthening to the point that it's so strong against the EU, it's almost unfavorable to the Russian economy, except maybe for Russians living abroad, and Russia enhancing its trading partnerships with countries like China and even India, which is also an ally with the United States, selling oil at uh, discounted prices to these countries as Saudi Arabia, which is the basis for the petrodollar, which provides the foundation of U.S. empire, moves into the Shanghai Cooperation Group. So this was all brought on and driven by the Ukraine proxy war. And that theme of de-dollarization or the theme of and, and, the, and the failure of sanctions so far to crush Russia, which suffered actually much more strongly under U.S. economic management in the 1990s, in the pre-Putin era, will send a message to other countries about allying with the U.S. And their other theme is as the, the theme of escalation. There was a major spread in the New York Times attempting to recap the Ukraine proxy war, painting it as a catastrophe for Russia generally and Vladimir Putin in particular. And in this major spread, which is a standalone section inserted in the Sunday Times, the Russian attacks on Ukraine's electrical grid were painted also as unprovoked. And what was unmentioned here were some of the most cynical and also catastrophic terror attacks that have taken place in the modern era, um, almost on the scale of 9-11. First, we're talking about the attack on the Nord Stream pipeline, which was the largest act of industrial sabotage of our lifetimes and caused a gigantic environmental disaster. And then we had the attack on the Kerch Bridge, a $4 billion project, which symbolizes Putin's legacy connecting Crimea to the Russian Federation. 
and the assassination of Daria Dugina, the daughter of the noted nationalist conservative Russian philosopher Alexander Dugin, who is sort of falsely portrayed in Western media as Putin's brain. These attacks, which were carried out by Ukrainian allies in NATO or Ukraine's security services themselves, were what triggered escalation in this war. And if certain dark forces in the US and UK establishment have their way, the escalation will continue and push us to the precipice of a nuclear conflict, something that extremists within the Russian Duma seem to also be clamoring for. And while the press, the corporate and mainstream press has failed to tell this story at the gray zone, we've not only told this story, we've provided concrete detail with leaked confidential documents of those dark forces within the UK security services that are intimately connected to their friends across the Atlantic in Washington, not only calling for escalation, attacking the Biden administration is not extreme enough, claiming that Putin will never deploy a nuclear weapon and that escalation must be continued no matter what, but actually exposing the plans to attack the Kerch Bridge and exposing plans to train a secret Ukrainian terror army to carry out attacks on targets in Crimea, which the Kremlin considers to be a part of the Red Russian Federation and a red flag. So if those attacks continue into 2023, I think we should fear for the continuation of civilization as we know it because of the, the possibility of nuclear war is more dire than at any point since I've been alive. And then I wanted to touch on another theme, of, on another issue if possible, if there's time really quickly. Okay, quickly. <clears throat> well, 2022 also saw the rollback of the COVID restrictions and also the discrediting of the lockdowns, the discrediting of COVID uh, vaccines as a, or the way they were portrayed by Fauci or the CDC director here in the States, Rochelle Walensky, as preventing infection and transmission. The mandates were rolled back. People haven't gotten their jobs back. But the narrative that was spun out in 2020 and 2021 has been largely discredited in the eyes of much of the public. And protesters in China who have protested the draconian zero COVID policy of Beijing have been upheld as heroes in Western media. Whereas those who protested similar measures, including internment camps for people who tested positive for COVID, even asymptomatically in Australia, those protesters were demonized by that same Western media. And so that leaves us in a kind of interregnum or purgatory between the rise of a biomedical security state that has kind of put on the brakes and stepped away and what comes next. And I think what the public has learned is not to necessarily trust the science, at least segments of the public have learned not to necessarily trust the science, uh, that these credentialed individuals might not exactly know what they're talking about and that those who were censored on Twitter under White House orders, as we now learned, under orders from the CDC and other government agencies, have actually been 
vindicated in warning about the damage lockdowns and school closures would do to young children in vulnerable sectors of the population. So as the debate intensifies, there will be other, it will be more difficult to impose these measures under the rubric of another pandemic, for example, but there will be a strong effort to do so because of, as we've seen, this pandemic was very profitable for some very powerful forces. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, well, that's very interesting. Um, now, uh, looking ahead at, at the state of the empire, what, what sorts of news and, and stories are you watching for in 2023? Well, I think the as um, former and current officials within the U.S. security establishment openly acknowledge the Ukraine proxy war is a test run for a military confrontation with China over the Taiwan Strait. And one thing we've seen is griping over the delivery of Patriot missile batteries to Ukraine, which can cost as much as $4 billion to operate one battery and require 80 military person, 80 uh, military specialists to operate. A, much of those, gr much of that grievance is related to the fact that those batteries will not be sent to Taiwan to escalate against China. So I'm watching for major escalation with China in 2023. The Biden administration certainly has the ability and desire to do that. And I'm also watching domestically the return of Donald Trump to the political scene as a presidential candidate and attempts to unravel his campaign and pave way for a more acceptable Republican like Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who is every bit as right wing as Trump, but less erratic and more subject to the control of the national security state. Someone who's a former JAG lawyer in, in Guantanamo who had a role in the torture of prisoners in Guantanamo and who has exhibited strong neoconservative tendencies with respect to Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, as well as China, Russia, and every other, pretty much every other geopolitical flashpoint. And where he diverges from Trump is that there never would have been a DeSantis summit with a Kim Jong-un to make peace on the Korean peninsula, something that 80% of South Koreans favor, that never would have happened. And this is what scares the security establishment about Trump, that he sometimes goes his own way and had to be sabotaged from within, whereas DeSantis will be a much more stable and predictable figure and possibly more beatable. So I think 2023 might mark the beginning of the post-Trump era. That was Max Blumenthal of The Gray Zone. And that was it for our list of events shaping the world in 2022, not mentioned in Western mainstream media. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. 
I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.